0: Good morning, everyone, back from Guatemala and New Orleans, and um, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters who follow Christ in the town of Sumpango, Guatemala, about an hour outside of Guatemala City. What a great group of people, warm-hearted, generous. They don't have much, but you'd never know it as they continue just uh, just extend such great generosity and their hospitality and their kindness in so many ways. And it was our privilege a couple of weeks back to take a team of people along with some others from around the state. There were about 21 of uh, the members here of this church who went down and the team was outstanding. They were pulling teeth left and right. The dentists were and the hygienists helping at their side. The doctors were seeing 50, 60 patients a day and then the team that was working with the kids in the little village up the mountainside in El Rajon, they were, they were working with 300 kids and divided into four groups, 75 kids packed in these rooms here the, in the good news of God's love for them in Christ. And then there were these skilled cabinet makers and carpenters that were putting things together for the church and for other ministries in town. And, and it was awesome. And all I can say is if you have the chance to go to Guatemala— Go. Don't, don't even hesitate. Go. But if they tell you, why don't you come with us to climb the volcano, it's an easy climb. Don't go. <laughs> That's what they told me on Friday. The team was leaving on Saturday, and I thought, hey, I can have a free day on Saturday. And so I'll go climb the volcano. I've climbed a lot of mountains before. And they say, it's an easy climb. I'm up for easy climbs. I've been looking at this volcano, and they say it's somewhere around 3,000 meters. I'm thinking 10,000 feet. It can't be too hard. So we start climbing. We get up about an hour. We meet this little kid who's selling Cokes and water on the, on the side of the trail. Yeah, you know, that's how they do it there. And so this a good entrepreneur. And he tells us, well, he tells them because I couldn't understand. He says, oh, just yesterday in the town below, Santa Maria de Jesus, they arrested three thugs that were robbing people. Oh, that's interesting. In fact, a couple weeks ago, there were 15 guys that were working the mountain trail holding up tourists and Guatemalans for money and cameras and anything they had. But don't worry, they don't work the weekends. (laughs) And I'm just dumb enough to believe them. So, okay, we keep going. This three-hour climb, they said, easy climb. It wasn't easy, and it wasn't three hours. At four and a half hours, we're finally at the top. I get home and look up this mountain, find out it's a 13,000-foot, 200-foot volcano it's way up there the air is pretty thin up there so we get up there but it's late in the day and we got to get down before dark which we didn't do on our way down about an hour down all of a sudden there's two backpackers coming up the trail and there's a serious conversation going on with the guys from Guatemala and at the end of the conversation I say to Cesar who knows English Cesar what's going on here he said these guys just told us that they got robbed at gunpoint I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. They don't just work during the week. <laughs> so, you know, I'm laughing now. I was not laughing last Saturday. So we prayed. God protect us. And we were pretty sure we we're going to meet these guys. I mean, they probably saw the gringo at 11 o'clock leaving town, and they're going, that'll be an easy hit. So we take off our shoes. I mean, I've got my wallet with all my credit cards, so I stuck him in my shoes put my passport down my pants. We're wrapping our cameras and our phones in garbage and sticking into empty granola boxes, thinking somehow that may fool the burglars. And we start walking down. I remember one point, we start hearing some weird birds whistling and we're all thinking the same thing without saying a word. Is it birds or is it the burglars? Well, we never saw the bandits. We made it down safe. But don't take that hike when you go to Guatemala. It's not easy. And it's a dangerous place to be. So Monday then of last week, flew to New Orleans to catch up with the team that was working, about 16 from our church, that was working doing some Katrina relief. And I was blown away, blown away about what God's doing in New Orleans and how it's so much more than a work project. So the second thing I say, you get an opportunity to go to New Orleans, and those are happening all the time. Go to New Orleans. The only thing I say here is, don't leave your wallet in the taxi. I know, you shouldn't do that. And I did that. Here I had this nice taxi cab ride from the airport. I got into the church, and I got to the church. It was all locked up, and I called Rudy King, our leader. I said, Rudy, I'm here. And just as I'm calling him, I had that nagging feeling. I'm missing something. No wallet. I said, Rudy, I got to go. I left my wallet in the taxi. And I had no clue what taxi I'd taken. It was a kind of a independent driver. She was driving her own van. Wonderful lady. African-American woman. She had the big fat Bible right there on the dashboard. We had the most wonderful conversation, but I didn't have a clue her name or the name of her taxi cab. So for the next hour after praying again, I am chasing down phone number after phone number trying to find out. I said, she's an African-American woman. She's got a gold tooth and she's got a big fat Bible right there on the dashboard. You gotta know, she drives a brown Chevy Astro. Now, I don't know who that is. Finally, I get to the, to the taxi cab stand. They go, Oh yeah, we know who that is. Just a minute, we'll call her. And if she's got it, she'll call you. So I get a call. Guess what her name was? Grace guess what the name of her taxi is? Amazing Grace. She said, Mark, this is Amazing Grace. Now, I've always believed in Amazing Grace. I've sung it, but now I can tell you, I've met her. She has a gold tooth, and she drives a taxi in New Orleans, and if you drive with Grace, you're in good hands. So an hour later, Grace brings back my wallet, and then on Wednesday, when I'm flying back, Grace takes me to the airport. We had a a great time. And she gave me a little sermon before she gave me back the wallet about trusting God and how God's in control of all things. So then I'm on the plane. It's Wednesday. I'm ready to get home. It's been a long trip. We turn from the taxi runway onto the runway. We're ready to take off. when the pilot says, friends, we just lost an engine. Now, some people around me were dumb enough to complain. I'm thinking if you're going to lose an engine, this is a great place to lose an engine. (laughs) But you want it to happen five minutes from now? Anyways, it took us a while to get home, but it's great to be back. And uh, warm greetings from the church again in Los Olivos. Pastor Giovanni extended an offer to preach in his pulpit this last Sunday, and I did. It was wonderful. And we hope that he will be coming with his wife, Magalie, this spring so that you get to meet Giovanni and some of the leaders of the church as well. Well, Kyle mentioned it. We're in our third series here, third message here in the series, Walk Across the Room. And today, we're talking about the power of story. That's why I want to tell you some stories, because there's something about a story that just grabs our attention, or it should. And there's two stories that's really important for a Christ follower to clearly be able to share. One is God's story, and we need to learn to tell it well. And the other is, we want to share not only the power of God's story, but the power of our story. God's turning our lives around, just as Adam has done this morning. So we're going to focus in, first of all, the power of God's story. And when you think about God's story being powerful, the Scriptures talk about that very thing in Romans, the first chapter, verse 16 and 17. Look at this verse, these verses on the screen. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's God's story. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. We need to live out the good news. That's part of being a joyful witness. That's one of our core values here, to joyfully share and live out the good news. But today, our focus is on sharing it. So this week, I'm hoping that you might be wonderfully surprised by someone who's been watching you live out a life that's different. A life that's emulating Christ. And they come to you this week and maybe they're going through something hard and they say, you know, I I know that you've got something going on and there's something different in your life and, and will you tell me what that is? That you'll be ready to clearly share God's story. Understanding that it is a powerful story that when God gives us faith to believe that story of God's love for us in Christ it changes us from the inside out forever. So I want to go through a couple of tools, and I'm calling these napkin-sized tools. In other words, this is the kind of thing if you're having a coffee over at Cool Beans or, or Latte da or Muddy Moose or wherever it is you get a cup of coffee, and you're with your friend, and you have that kind of a conversation that just on a napkin, you can sketch it out, all right? So the first is two ways to live. The choice we all face. Two ways to live is a wonderful presentation of God's powerful story. I'm not going to go through it this morning because two weeks ago we carefully went through it. But what I'll do is remind you that you can log on to our website. On the top left there's a welcome section and there's a a question that says wondering about God. You click on that, there's a link to this presentation. You go back to the resource table and you can pick up a version of Two Ways to Live for Kids. It's really cool. Who is the king? It's so cool that this one costs more. It's 70 cents. And this is the adult version and the student version, two ways to live. Take one of these so that you can become familiar with a tool that helps you clearly explain the powerful story of God's love for us in Christ. Here's another tool that you can use. I call it one-verse evangelism. It comes from one verse in the Bible, Romans 6:23. Let's read that verse together. You see it on the screen? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What this this Bible verse is saying in one verse is, we deserve to die because we're sinners. We've rejected God. We've ignored him. We have, as Two Ways to Live says, we put the crown on our own head and said, hey, we want to... We want to rule our own life. Thanks a lot, God. But God offers us the gift of eternal life. And it's a free gift. And that gift comes through Jesus Christ. So here's how you could draw it out. It's kind of like the bridge illustration, if you're familiar with it. You've got this chasm between us and God. And what separates us are the wages of our sin, which is death. That's what's separating us from God. But God offers us, the gift of God, which is eternal life. And that gift is offered through the cross, through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we can receive this gift as we turn away from ignoring God or rejecting him or not believing in him or not surrendering to him. We turn away from our sin and we trust in Christ alone for a relationship with God. That's one verse evangelism right there on a napkin. Romans 6, 23. There's a third one. Adam rela- referred to it in his story of grace. It's a simple paradigm that I first heard Bill Hybels give. He's a pastor down in the Chicago area. And it's the difference between do and done. Remember Adam's question at the wheel of his car? God, what do I need to do so that you'll change the mess in my life? So you deal with the guilt that I'm dealing with. What do I need to do? And for so many of us, that's our construct of how we can get things right with God. I've got to perform. I've got to meet meet the mark. I've got to measure up to his grade. And so we get in this self-improvement thing, or we get into this thing of, hey, there's a scale going on in my life, and there's got to be more good in my life than bad in my life. And if the scales tip the right way, I'm in with God And things are going to be good for me now and forever. And the Bible says it's not about what we do. In fact, the Bible has this great verse that says the best that we do compared to the holiness of God is like a smelly rag. It comes out of the cleaning closet, just smells. But it's what He has done. It's not about our good works, it's about the good work that Christ has done. On the cross for you and for me. There's a great verse, actually verses that talk about this very thing Ephesians 2 8 through 10. It's by grace. Grace is a free gift. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, your salvation or even the faith. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're saved by God's grace through faith in his son, who's done it on the cross for us. And when it comes to doing, the doing follows the trusting in Christ alone. And then we do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Tools to share the powerful story of God's grace. When I think of sharing the story, there's a a passage in the Bible where Paul is talking about his walks across the room for his friends in the city called Thessalonica. And there's three things he says about how he walked across the room that I think are good for us to remember as we bring this tool to bear, maybe in a conversation this week. He said to his friends, I shared the gospel with deep conviction he really believed it was true. He really believed it had the power to change someone's life, radically change their life. He said, not only did I share with deep conviction, but I shared it in the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That, that I wasn't thinking that, that this whole matter of changing someone's life was going to rest in my ability to persuade them, to reason out all the, the questions that they might have. To be so good of a person that they'd look at me and say, Oh, I want what you have. But that I would completely depend on the Spirit of God to open the eyes and hearts of people to receive the message of God, the love of God in Christ, and to change their lives. And then he said, and I was willing to share with you, because I loved you so much, not only the gospel, but my own life as well. There is a transparency. There is humility. There is humility. As he shared the gospel and lived it out before them. So the power of God's story is, is there. And we need to learn as his followers to tell it well. Three tools. You may have some other tool. That's fine. But find a tool so as someone comes to you or you have the opportunity to share the good news, you know how to do it effectively. All right? And that brings us to the second story that we need to tell well. It's our story. And as we look at the power of our story to change people's lives, what, one of the things we want to do is just go to John chapter 4. And what we're going to do is use the woman at the well in John chapter 4 as kind of a case study of, of the power of our own story to bring about a profound impact, in this case, on a community. So open your Bibles or grab the one in front of you. John chapter 4. You can find it on page 752. We'll start reading at verse 4. Now he, the he here is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. And what we have in the opening three verses is Jesus' popularity is growing. He's down in Jerusalem. It's not his time yet. He's kind of moving out of the limelight. He's going up north to Galilee, which is kind of his ministry headquarters. So now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. That's the way up. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was about high noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. In other words, there wasn't anybody else to give him a drink. He was so tired, he asked this woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? John adds here, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, why don't they associate with Samaritans? Because Samaritans were Jews who sold out 800 years before when the Assyrians swooped down and carried off a lot of people from the 10 northern tribes. And when they carried them up off to Assyria, what they did is they reversed the deportation and brought a whole bunch of people in. And the people they brought in were not God-fearers. The people they brought in were idolaters. The people that they brought in were the kinds of people that God had clearly said, don't intermingle with those people. Don't marry their daughters because they're going to draw your heart away from me. And that's exactly what happened. And so they are the people that were the hated half-breeds. And what we have here is this huge information here that ought to strike us. When Jesus walks across the room in this situation, he does not allow any political, any social, any ethnic barrier to prevent him from extending his grace to a person in need. I mean, this woman had truly three strikes against her. She was a woman. Women were looked down upon. The famous Jewish prayer of Jesus' day was, God, thank you that you did not create me a woman. The, the religious leaders of the Jewish community would not teach the law to women. They were just second-class citizens. Not, Never in Jesus. Never in Jesus' mind. There is no second-class citizen. They're all created in the image of God himself. She had another strike. She was a Samaritan. And as we read along in the story, she's got another strike against her. She's a big time sinner like me and like you. And yet Jesus walks across the room, so to speak, and engages her right where she's at. So look at verse 10, keep going. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is using the very common thing that's brought them together, the well and the water, to talk about something way beyond the water in that well, living water. In John chapter 7, verse 37, he uses the same metaphor, and it's clear what he's talking about here is the giving of the Holy Spirit, who's like this eternal source that wells up and gives us life, and through us extends Christ's grace to others. So here's verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water because it's a pain. I get tired coming out here filling up my pots and I'd love some of that water so I'd never have to do this again. She doesn't get where Jesus is going. And now he changes the subject to drive the point home. Verse 16. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said nervously. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, just said, is quite true. You can almost hear the woman stuttering now, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. All of a sudden, he's talking about her life and her broken relationships and her promiscuous relationship that she's in right now. And she's going, How in the world does this stranger I've never met before know all these things? He is a very spiritual person. He is a prophet. He's gone from being a Jew to being a prophet. And the beautiful thing here is Jesus brings up her troubled past not to accuse her, he doesn't say, You wicked woman, you need a savior. No, he brings up the matter of her broken relationships to let her know that she's got a broken heart and the things that she's thirsting for in intimacy in this human plane are only things that the living waters that Christ gives can satisfy. You go back to John chapter 3, 16 and 17. Turn back a page. In John three sixteen, he's talking to a religious leader, very different from the Samaritan woman. He's talking to a, a man who's he's at the top of the crust of society. She's an ignorant one at the bottom rung of the ladder. And he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need to have a spiritual rebirth because you're spiritually flatlined dead. You need new life. You need to be born again. That's how we put it to Nicodemus. And the reason Christ did not condemn this woman is because of what John three sixteen and seventeen tells us. These are great verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now look at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why he didn't get in her face, he came to save the world. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Can you imagine the dark secrets of our lives going public? I mean, let's face it. For most of us who are married, our spouses don't know everything that we've ever thought or done. Let's face it. Our, our, our closest friends, our parents. And if those things were made public, it would be scandalous. And yet the scriptures say there will be a day when it'll all be out in the daylight. There isn't anything we've ever done, there's not everything we'll ever do that God doesn't know it already. And the beauty here is Christ, knowing who she is and everything that she's done, he extends his mercy and grace to her, but he brings up her need so she understands that the things she thirsts for will only be met in Christ. Well, obviously, she's a little uncomfortable about the way this conversation's going. We've been talking about water and living water, which is a little weird for her, and now her husband's, and she's going, oh, wait a minute, let's change the subject. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, she said, Mount Gerizim. You Jews claim that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Maybe this will work. A little bunny trail to the right, right here. Let's get off that subject. And Jesus said, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, not for the Jews, Jesus says, from the Jews. It begins with the Jews. Then it's for all people. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus meets her on the bunny trail, turns her right around and says, look, you're concerned about places. Where do you meet with God? Is it Jerusalem? Is it up on Gerizim? He said, it's not about a place. You know how you meet God? You meet him in His Son." It's about a person in a relationship with him. And then we read that God is a God who is seeking worshipers. He is drawing people to himself so that we'd understand who he is and have a taste of his mercy and grace. And then give our lives, the rest of our lives, as an offering of sacrifice, of praise and worship to him. He is seeking worshipers. Don't forget it this week. Because you're thinking about, I'm going to go and I'm going to walk. And what you're going to be surprised is, God's going to bring someone to you. Like Jesus had the woman at the well show up just when he showed up. Because God's seeking worshipers. And here's the kind of worshiper he's seeking. Someone who worships in spirit. Our, our worship is led by the spirit. Philippians 3.3 talks about it. It is from our own heart authentic, genuine, from the heart. And it is worship based on the truth of who God has revealed himself to be in his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. So what does the woman say in verse 25? The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. The Samaritans only have the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And in the Pentateuch, there is the promise of another prophet coming like Moses, but greater. There is the promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.16. And she's saying, I've heard, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I'm the promised Savior. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, remember why she came, to fill that jar. Now she's leaving the water jar. The woman went back to town and said to the people, here's her story. It's not very long. It's not very profound at first glance. Here's her story, verse 29. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior? Now don't miss the principles that we glean from John 4 regarding the power of our own story. First and foremost, our story needs to focus on Christ, just as hers did. Her story was about Jesus. He told me everything I ever did. She didn't know everything there was to know about Jesus, did she? She shared what she did know. That's really important for those of you who are new in your journey of being a follower of Christ. You share what you do know. She didn't know everything. She just knew, this guy told me everything I ever did. And believe me, in that small town, of sidecar, you think those people knew about her past? Oh, yeah, they did. You think there's a reason why she was the only woman drawing water in the hottest part of the day? She was an outcast in her town. They knew her story. Her story was about Jesus and how he loved her in spite of who she was and what she did. Do you know that? That you're harder on yourself than God is. You, you, you actually believe a lie. How could God love me for the junk that I have done? The people that I say I've loved. Christ loved this woman, and he knew everything about her. He loves you, and he knows everything you've ever done. Third thing, her story was shared with deep conviction so that she invites him to come and see and check him out. And her story, incredibly many to faith in Christ. So look at verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. What testimony? He told me everything I ever did. You're kidding. Many Samaritans from that town believe simply because of her story? Yeah, that's what the scriptures say. The power of her story to change a community. So, When the Samaritans came to him, verse 40, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So this week, as you go back into your small groups and are talking about this, you're going to be encouraged to write out your story. I want to show you a little video clip because this video clip really gives us some helpful tips on how not to write up our story, okay? So listen.
1: Here's the thing. I didn't realize how screwed up I was until I met this guy at the train station. But before I get to that, I've got to give you a little bit about my background. Almost every faith story that has been told to me has been way longer than it should have been. Sometimes I think my clothing is going to go out of fashion by the time they finish the story. Even after that, I still had a wild and crazy upbringing. Take my school bus rides, for example. Get to the point. Why did you pursue a faith experience? What happened? What's changed? And mercifully end the story. You know, someone can always ask you a follow-up question. You know, I met my wife there. She was a real looker. Do not oversupply and kill the demand.
0: I think I've always believed in something, or wanted to believe in something. I think Humans have a deep need to believe, you know, there's a
1: longing for significance, meaning, unlike the animal kingdom, you know, dogs and apes and gerbils. (laughs) Another thing that just drives me crazy is when someone is telling me their faith story and they're not clear. They go on and on and I go, in my mind, I, I say to myself, well, be specific. What did actually happen?
0: But We've got this spirit force in us that's longing to be tapped and set free.
1: Shoot straight. Make it clear to me so that when you're done with your story, I kind of know the deal. I know the facts. I I know exactly what you went through. If you fuzz around the whole thing, uh... there's really no clarity for me to to reckon with after you're done with your story this guy comes up and sits right next to me and starts talking to me i mean you don't talk to people on the train that you don't know, right?
0: I pray all the time now I pray for friends like you you know whose whose lives are going nowhere I pray for understanding that God will help me know
1: what's wrong with people so that you know I can be a lifesaver for them if a story starts with any air of superiority I'm done I don't want to listen to it
0: I'm giving up a storm <laughs> yeah, just ask my kids uh, they'll say that you know I am the primo dad of the universe just ask my church ask them who donated the money for the new wing
1: if a person starts out saying well, Obviously, you know, I kind of know something that you don't, and I've experienced something that you haven't, and I know the right way, and you probably don't. Again, as the listener, I'm done. I don't need you being superior to me, and uh, most people really don't like the feeling of being demeaned or devalued. Oh. Wait, where, where was I? Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, my school bus driver. So, anyway... <laughs>
0: No. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of God. Thou shalt no longer be termed forsaken.
1: When I hear someone tell a faith story and it's filled with religious terminology, I really wonder if they've thought through the, uh, the condition of the listener. Does that listener really understand the terms that we get familiar with in uh, religious circles?
0: Thou shalt be called Hesvapa, (laughs) and thy land Beulah, the Lord delighted in thee.
1: I think we have to work much harder to describe our faith story using the kind of terms that everybody uses in regular, everyday conversation. Now, it takes discipline to do that. And I often encourage people to actually write out their faith story, word for word, not to commit it to memory, but to expunge the religious jargon from it.
0: All right, so how not to share our story? What did did we just learn? Not to be long-winded. Get to the point and keep the focus on Christ. Don't be fuzzy. Don't act superior. Arrogant. Uh, Don't use religious jargon. Be very careful of that. They actually, religious jargon may be words right out of the Bible, but if they're not words that are understandable to the person you're talking to, it's better that we don't use that. And then don't go into any weird God stories. And what I'm saying about a weird God story, sometimes God moves in some mysterious ways. And that may be part of your story. I'd encourage you to stay away from that. Those kinds of stories are so out of the realm of a person's experience that it may actually distract them from the person of Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. As you think about writing your story, think simply about a before section where what you're going to do is describe, here's what I was like before I knew Christ, before I was a follower of Christ. What did Adam say? I had the cool card. That's how he began. I was the cool guy with the cool card that had everything going for me, right? And then you get to this whole thing. And and to get to that point of what I was like, there's a lot of things that you were like before Christ, if you've come to know him personally. And so maybe think about five to ten adjectives that describe, this is what I was like, and then choose one of those. Or this is the path I was headed on. Choose something like that. For those of you who go, you know, I don't really have this before part of my life. I came to faith in Christ as a young child. Well, then you go someplace in your life where you went through a crisis and Christ met you there. Make that your story. Make that the focus of how your relationship with Christ has made all the difference in your life, and here's an example of it. Okay? Then you come to the second part. And and the first part, the before, that's just a little part of it. That's like 25% of the story, right? Now, when you get to describing the circumstances that turned you to Christ and brought you to a place of trust in him alone, well, that's got more of it. And here you're looking at the crisis. What was it for Adam? It was his friend's death and the breakup with his girlfriend. That was the crisis that brought him to Christ. And then, simply after, since placing my trust in Christ, focus again on Christ and the difference he's brought and is bringing to your life. So here's what we want to offer, is this week, as you write up your stories, whether you're in a small group talking about it, or going to do it on your own, that there's actually an email address, storiesofgrace.org. Write it up, 100 words or less, or if it's a little longer, that's okay, and the staff here at Door Creek is going to look over it. We won't, we promise we won't use red ink, we won't give you a grade, but we'll help you We'll give you some feedback so that you can just get a story that will really be powerfully used by God. Maybe this week in somebody else's life. So let's not forget the power of story, God's story, the power of God for salvation, and the power of our story, like the woman who saw many of her friends in that town of Sychar have their lives completely turned around. And it all started with her story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love that you know everything about us like you do and did that Samaritan woman. And you love us still. And Lord, we're amazed at your love. And we pray for those who might be here right now. And this is all new to them. But what they can relate to is maybe a a time of crisis like Adam was talking about. What they can relate to maybe is this, this thirsting and longing for intimacy. Or broken heart, and Lord, we would pray that you'd meet them in this time of need, and you'd open the eyes of their hearts and their minds to see that your Son truly is the Savior of this world, and that you grant them faith to believe it. And Lord, this week as we go out, may it be in the confidence that your story will continue to change lives, and will when we go out, Lord, with a renewed confidence to know that even the simple stories that we have can be used powerfully in others' lives as well. Help us in these ways to honor you and to spread your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.